Welcome, parents, Mimas, bubbies, and opas. This is the Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. I'm your host, Drew Nash, coming to you from One to One Pediatrics in Danville, California. This is episode 112. I've put together a fun and informative show for you today. In today's episode, I will have an in-depth discussion with a pediatric physical therapist. We will talk about issues relevant to motor function and gross motor development. We will discuss the common things that are treated by physical therapists, what they do, and when a referral should be initiated by a primary care physician. In addition, we'll continue the segments Pediatric Fun Facts and Parenting Horror Stories. And at the end of the show, I'll answer some questions from listeners. For those listeners who have no idea how they found this show, The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcasting platforms. The listener base is growing fast. We're now in seven countries, and that is increasing every week. But since I'm always trying to build our listener base, I'm calling on you, our fans, to help spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbors, your child's daycare provider, and anybody you know who might like listening to us how to find us. Follow us on whatever platform you use to hear us so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. In addition, we're on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast and Twitter at Podcast for Parents, where you can like us, post a comment, post a question to be answered on the show, or even tell your pediatric horror story. If there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, this is a terrific way to let us know. Also, For the past few episodes, I've started posting information, photos, and videos to add a visual component to some of our segments. So check it out and like us. And now for the ever-present disclaimer. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of the show, the information discussed on the owner's manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. If you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. Before we jump to the main topic, it's time for Pediatric Fun Facts. Each week, I bring you an interesting pediatric factoid or historical item that you probably didn't know and might not believe. My gray matter is jammed up with these things and I'm hoping to clear up some space by sharing it with you. So let's jump right in. Pediatric Fun Facts. We all know that one of the most important things that parents can do to protect their infants and children against a variety of infectious diseases is to have them vaccinated. But do you know where the term vaccination actually comes from and how long it's been around? Well, let me tell you. One of the greatest infectious scourges that has ever plagued mankind is the disease smallpox. There are historical accounts of the disease wiping out large populations from several hundred years BC. Most likely, the early Chinese were the first to figure out that intentionally exposing an individual to remnants of a healing smallpox scab could in many cases give that individual a mild case of the disease that they could recover from and then be immune to further infection. They did this by grinding up dried scabs from an infected individual, living or dead, and either blowing it into a healthy person's nasal cavity, totally gross, or by scraping the skin 
and intentionally rubbing the scab powder into the wound, a procedure that eventually was called inoculation. Now remember that this procedure was developed hundreds of years before anybody understood about viruses or bacteria or how disease was actually transmitted. Doing this to prevent the disease smallpox, or variola, as it was called in the medical community, was referred to as variolating somebody. Undergoing the procedure of being variolated could often confer a mild case of this horrible disease, but in many cases would result in the individual getting a full-blown case of smallpox and either caused disfiguring scarring of the face and body or just plain out killed the person. However, undergoing variolation had a much better outcome than taking the chance of getting and surviving smallpox in the community. So many individuals, especially the wealthy during time of outbreaks, would summon variolators to have themselves and their children variolated in hopes of increasing their chances. This continued throughout the Middle Ages and Renaissance. It wasn't until Edward Jenner in 1796 discovered that a similar disease, cowpox, that affected animals could also confer immunity against smallpox, but with a much lower risk. Cowpox, or vaccina as it was called in the medical community, did not produce a severe disease in humans, so to use scabs from cowpox lesions to inoculate an individual could provide excellent protection against smallpox without running the risk of causing the potentially fatal disease. As you can probably guess, the procedure of inoculating a person with vaccina became known as vaccination. Over the past 200 years, researchers have developed immunizations against dozens of potentially deadly infectious diseases. Many of these use killed remnants of a virus or bacteria that is the causative agent. Some utilize weakened strains of the virus to produce immunity too. Some newer immunizations like the acellular pertussis vaccine or DTAP only use protein particles that are normally present on the bacteria's surface to allow our bodies to develop antibodies. We've come a long way since the development of the smallpox vaccine. In fact, in the year 1980, the World Health Organization declared that horrible disease was eradicated from the face of the earth. But every time you hear the word vaccination describe the immunizations given to you or your children, think of Edward Jenner back in the 18th century and how he helped the world prevent the spread of what was probably the worst infectious disease to affect humankind. And that is your pediatric fun fact for the day. And now on to the show. My guest today has a master's in physical therapy from the College of St. Catherine in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Prior to completing her training, she worked for five years as an aide, providing in-home services to special needs children in Minneapolis. After getting her PT degree, she began working at John Muir Pediatric Physical Therapy and has been there for the past 17 years. She sees children from infancy through adolescence for a variety of developmental and physical ailments ranging from congenital issues to sports-related injuries. Please welcome to the show, Laurel Clymer. So welcome to the show, Laurel. Thank you, Dr. Nash. Thanks I'm glad for to be here. Uh, coming in and joining me. And we're here today to talk about pediatric physical therapy and uh, what you do. Excellent. So what do you do? What's the most common thing you see in your office as far as referrals and pediatric physical therapy? Probably the most common thing I see is p babies with torticollis. So either positioning in utero or um, 
overstretched muscle during labor and delivery. And for those who don't know, what is torticollis? <laughs> it's a muscle in your neck that gets a little tight. So the babies will only look left or right, or they will only tilt their head left or right. Is there, a, I see this a lot and I send people to you. Is there a um, more dominant left or right preference that you see, or do you think it's more 50-50? I really think it's more 50-50. Okay. I think there's streaks. Like, I think it'll go, okay, I've seen, like, 10 left-sided, and now... In a row. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Because um, I, I, I think I see that, too, but I don't know whether I'm just imagining or I'm trying to read things in. So, I, I think I see a lot of left-looking babies for a period of time, and then maybe a lot of right-looking babies. So, you mm -hmm. kind of sense the same thing. Yes, definitely. So, they're kind of either stuck looking one direction and really can minimally look the other way. Correct. Or it's definitely a preponderance of one direction. Yes, definitely. And uh, or and parents mostly find it because they will only feed to one side. If they're breastfeeding, mm -hmm. they won't be able to turn their head to go to the other side so as easily. Much more, they'll prefer one side much more. Mm -hmm. They'll find it difficult to feed the other way just because the baby doesn't want to turn their head that way. Correct. Okay. So you evaluate them, and then what happens? Then I give them exercises to do, so things that they can do for their child to encourage them to look the opposite direction. So if they're only looking left or they're only tilting their head to the left, I will help them encourage them. Babies, you know, depends on how old they are, don't really like interested in the world until they're a couple months old. Mm -hmm. So they don't really want to track your face or toys or whatever, but we can do and these. So these are really small babies. These are less <coughs> than two-month-olds that you're seeing. Uh, yeah, they will come in. Uh, youngest one I've had was two days old, so on the way home wow. from the hospital. It was that notable. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, all the way up to six, eight months old, they will still come in. And when this lasts longer, when this is going on for longer, you see other changes, skull shape. Yes, Yes. Face shape even. Yes, sometimes their face will change shapes and then you go to the cranial facial or neurosurgeons. And it's the helmet clinic. Yes, to yes. be evaluated, not because you need surgery from these people. No, but <laughs> but what, this is a positional thing mm -hmm. that I see all the time. and um, But the common cause of that, that they get asymmetric head shape is because they're looking asymmetrically. They're looking in one direction more. Correct, yeah. yes. And some of them, their head shape will change so quickly that it'll have a point in the back of their head and they really physically can't lie with their head in the middle because it tips off the cliff into the left. So in my office, I have, and I don't know whether you buy into this, but I have a couple of display items that are like positional pillows. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a thing called, a, I think it's called a tortle. Yes, the tortle hat. That is a hat. that yes. I, It's the most simple thing. I wish I had invented it. It's basically a baby hat that has a, a little teeny mini bean bag built into it that you can position to make the baby turn in the direction that they're tending not to. Is that something that is yes. effective? Uh, I don't know. So I have the brochure in my office. I give it to people. I tell them to try it and I ask them to tell me how it works. And often I just get, I think so. So yeah. Uh, okay. I, mean, uh, I, I have the actual turtle. I bought one just so I could have it in my display case and I'll show it to people. Yes. And, um, it seems, it seems like it would work. And it also seems, I love things that have like zero potential for harm. Right. So it's certainly not going to hurt and it is quite a tight fitting hat if yes. you've ever put it on a baby it, or it should be it should be yes yeah. otherwise they just turn and then their head spins in the hat and yes. 
doesn't work. It doesn't so if you notice work. your child having some asymmetry in movement, that's something maybe to try. The other thing I have, with, I don't even know if I know the name of it, but it's almost like a small mat that is a uh, memory foam thing with a cutout in the middle. Yes. It just encourages them to stare at the ceiling, I guess, when they're laying there as opposed to turning one way or the other. Yeah, anything you can do to get them to keep their head in the middle, so looking straight ahead, is better than turning full left or full right. Yep. Okay. And this is something we've seen. We didn't used to see this. I'm sure you saw Turticollis, but we didn't used to see what we call positional plagiocephaly prior to baby sleeping on their back. So yes. my oldest son is old enough that he was a belly sleeper because that was what we thought was best. And that wasn't a thing back then. And we've created this, not epidemic, but we've created the situation from recommending back sleeping, which is a good thing to recommend, but you have to watch for this. Yeah, originally it was very prevalent in people who worked in phone, uh, like call centers, because they would hold the phone between their ear and shoulder before headsets in the 70s. Yeah. And so they would get this tightening of their neck muscle because they'd be holding a phone between their ear and their shoulder for hours and hours a day. And we and would then treat adults. Little, then there was that thing, that little attachment. Yes. This giant the rubbery. Rubber air thing. filled thing yeah. that would give it a little bit more space. So you saw adults with torticollis, mm -hmm. not not congenital torticollis, Correct. but they developed it from their work environment. Yes. Okay. And that kind of went away with headsets. Yep. And now we're getting a lot of babies, especially, I mean, some of it too is uh, newborns that are premature babies that are in the NICU and they've got devices attached to their face, you know, mm -hmm. breathing tubes, sure. feeding tubes, whatever. Yep. And they're kind of turned one way or the other. NICUs are really great about trying to force you go left or right. Yep. Frequently change you throughout the day, but some babies just can't. And it's far more important to keep them alive and healthy and eating than it is to change the position of their neck. At I'd say point. from my perspective, I see more babies who are affected with congenital torticollis um, and asymmetric head shapes that are full-term babies than the preemies. I mean, right. the preemies, the really small preemies are prone to this kind of long, skinny head thing. Yes. But the other preemies, I think the nurses are pretty good about They're positioning right, and repositioning. Yes, and, yeah. changing that. And the bigger babies, too. The yeah. moms that are 5 feet tall and 80 pounds and have 10-pound babies. Yes. Yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> and then other things you see commonly... Um, Delays uh, in walking? Delays in walking, delays in crawling, not sitting, not rolling. So what age should a baby be walking by? What's sort of the range of normal and when do you think a kid should get sent off for some help? So everybody's family is really good about telling you what your baby should be doing. Yes, they are. <coughs> so I would say when people panic at their first birthday, if your baby's not walking, don't panic. You've got plenty of time. The average age is actually 15 to 18 months. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, pediatricians in this area are really great about, okay, we're not going to worry about this. Uh, if they're still progressing, but they're maybe not, you know, if they're just sitting and doing nothing, I would say come in earlier. But if they're pulling to stand, they're cruising, they're just not taking those steps on their own. They're mobile. They're mobile. They just don't need to walk because they can get places. Or they've ways. got older siblings that will pick them up and carry them or bring the things to them. Yep. Or sure. There's a whole dynamic there. So is there an age which you say if your kid's not really making steps toward pardon the pun, <laughs> making steps towards walking, making progress towards walking, that they should talk get an evaluation. Yeah, talk to your pediatrician around 18 months. Yeah, that's usually my, I have sort of lines in the sand for a few things, and one of them, and it doesn't mean that the kid wouldn't eventually walk on their own anyways, but usually if a child isn't walking by 18 months, that's when I'll send them to you. 
Yeah, so we'll just take a look. Like, are they doing something funky? Do they have an issue? Is their foot kind of flatter? Is there a weakness? Is there something going on that's making it harder for them? I mean, they still could do it, but it takes effort. And maybe that child doesn't want to put that effort in, especially at the end of the day, end of the week, when they've been moving around for a long period of time. And landmarks earlier, so milestones that they should be making earlier, that if they're delayed enough that you would think that they should probably get into PT earlier and or their cause for concern? Yeah, I mean, I always love the early referrals. It's always easier to uh, show the child the path than it is to fix the tr strange thing that they've learned to make it so that they can mm -hmm. do it. Uh, rolling four to six months, sitting six to eight months, crawling somewhere around nine to 12 months. And I do like the crawling. I know it's not. Oh, let's talk about that because I actually, <laughs> I have questions for you about that. Okay. So you like the crawling. I do. And are you of the school that a baby should crawl? I would prefer it. There are some kids I don't even work towards that because I just know that they're too old. They're not interested. They really like standing. They really like cruising. We're just going to skip it, and we'll crawl later to get those coordination, those core stability exercises. And when you say crawling, are you talking about, like, the traditional hands and, foot cr hands and knees crawling? Are you talking about any way where you're elevated off the ground because there's commando crawling, there's crawling, there's like a spider crawl. Right. There's a hands and or elbows and a foot. And there's yeah. uh, so obviously the best for me is hands and knees. So you're crawling, you're moving your right hand forward, your left leg forward uh, is ideal. Some kids commando crawl on their elbows and knees. Some kids, their belly's a little bit up. If you're getting that reciprocal gait, so you're moving an arm and then you're moving a leg, that's ideal. Front to back and left to right. Correct. Yes. So crossing midline. Yes. Yeah. So the right arm moves, the left leg moves, left arm moves, right leg moves. Just to keep that that coordination of movement uh, works your core very nicely. We all could use core exercises in our life. Uh, there's a whole school of teachers that think that if you didn't crawl, you're not a good reader. I never right. crawled. Right. And, th and so I, I have poked fun at this with people in the past and I, so is there validity to that do you think i haven't seen it i didn't crawl and i just totally skipped over it and i love to read i will read okay. 100 pages in a day so or in an hour the easily. subject of you that doesn't seem to correlate <laughs> no but there's support i've heard of this and yes. i don't there's support groups of like adult people with dyslexia and other reading issues and they go around crawling around the room yes and help in hopes of remediating their midline or left to right yep. and deficit. Uh, and our uh, adult neurotherapists, so people who have had a traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury or a stroke, they will watch them move and they'll say, oh, you never crawled. Like they will know that they skipped that step and the person's like, yeah, why can't you see that? So they can pick that up? Yes. Really? Okay. So it's very fascinating to me. So that for me, that's my thing. Like, okay, if you if you don't crawl before you walk, then let's give you a tunnel. Let's make you crawl under the dining room table. Let's give you some activities, even though you're three years old. So it's important, you think, to get kids mobile horizontally. I do. Okay. So, so um, a prior podcast with my sister-in-law, Michelle Brown, who's an exercise specialist, um, she wasn't specifically talking about that, but one of the things that she suggested as far as activities to get, we we're talking about getting less active kids active, was creating obstacle courses, like creating boxes to crawl through. And so 
it sort of encompasses that. Yes, take the couch cushions off the couch, put them on the floor, make, make your baby go up tunnels. and over it, and make tunnels, make forts. Okay. Yes. So that's a great activity because the other question I get a lot from parents is, you know, they, they ask me how I should play with my baby, and I'm like, you know, it's all sort of intuitive and natural, but these are great ideas if you want to create games or exercises to do in that pre-walking infant who's mobile. Right, yes. Get them active, crawling over, crawling under. Yes, and you crawling. don't need bells and whistles. You don't need to go to a store and buy. No, you can create this. You can take an empty box or yes. whatever, and you can take, yeah. Don't leave the kid in the box by themselves. No, that's not what we're saying. <laughs> Disclaimers. <laughs> okay. Yes. So crawling is important. It is to me. Before walking. Mm -hmm. Or after. It's fine, too. But I like I like the progression of movement. It seems to make more coordinated. So a little bit off topic, but this is sort of semi-related. You know, when the, the normal motor program of walking, the gait, um, there's this arm movement that go, goes along with leg movement yes. when you walk properly. And most people, let me just say this slowly so I get this right, is when your left foot's going forward, your right arm is going forward. Correct. So, but some people don't walk that way. They walk like giraffes where they're moving the right side of their body and then the left side and of their bodies. And it looks odd. If it, you ever see that in someone, if you're watching for that, it looks odd. And that's sort of that midline thing we're talking about, maybe gone awry. Yes, I agree. Okay. And I don't stop those people on the street. No, to ask them no. If and you crawled. don't point your finger and laugh. <laughs> no, but it's just, but most people will walk in the first way I described. And then every so often they'll encounter someone that looks almost like they're pivoting around their midline. Yes. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. We'll get kids crawling. Good. Kids crawling. Yeah. Tummy time when they're tummy, awake. Tummy time. An age when that should start. I usually tell people right from the time they get their kid home, they should spend some time on their belly. Yeah. If the belly button has fallen off and then right. it's more comfortable for the yeah. baby, they will cry. They will yell at you. They will not like it. I am not one of those people that I need 15 minutes six times a day. But it the could more be they a, do it, the more they'll like it. Yes, they will get used to it. It can be a couple seconds. It can be chest to chest. You can prop up their chest and arms up on a little pillow or a firm pillow. And what I like to point out to patients, because, again, my oldest, who's 25, he was a stomach sleeper because that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And w it was important to give a kid back time then. And you'd put them on their back, and they were like a turtle on their shell, and they hated it, and they cried, and they'll flail their arms and legs, and they loved their belly, and they hated their back. So it's all kids what they like what they're used to, and they're used to what they like. Yes. So kind of making them and be a little bit outside. And it's hard. I mean, babies' heads look the size of their head compared to their neck. Yeah. That is a big thing it to have to lift up. a big thing, yes. And they're going to hate it. And so you do it a little bit at a time. Like I said, chest to chest, maybe you semi-recline for the first couple of days, and then they it's learn. It's like doing push-ups or sit-ups. Exactly. When you first start it, you hate it, and then you get quickly better at it. Yes. So different positions throughout the day. And it really yeah. helps development to be right. in your tummy. Yeah, core tone and all that. Mm -hmm. Yep, great. Okay, so we talked about um, crawling. We talked about getting a kid in for walking. Um, next things you see as far as physical therapy referrals? Uh, probably a foot pain, ankle pain, knee pain in the 7 to 11-year-olds, whether they're athletes or not. So what's that about? <coughs> uh, usually... Um, hip weakness, flat feet, and flat feet is not a problem unless it's causing you problems. Yes. 
And it doesn't usually cause a problem when they're young. Right. It starts to cause a problem when they get bigger. Yes. Because when you stand up, the feet are at the bottom <laughs> right. and have yeah. to bear all the weight. <laughs> yes. And if you if you take a bunch of professional athletes and you have them walk across a puddle and then you walk across the cement, you will see they all look like ducks. I mean, they're all their feet are pretty flat and they are obviously doing fine. They are professional athletes. Their bodies are working at a level that mine could never do. And they have flat feet. It's not causing them an issue. So I don't correct for it unless there's an issue. Are you the kid that's getting laughed at in PE because you're the slowest runner, because you're working so much harder, because your feet are flatter? Then I would give them something a little bit. Like Let's work on strengthening. Let's get you a little bit support in your shoe. Maybe it's so even a little just a better shoe. Uh, yeah. The over-the-counter ones is it's what I usually recommend people yes. starting with, not yep. spending a fortune just... You do not go to the drugstore. Yes. The $50 ones are definitely doable. Okay. And then exercises, you teach them exercises to build their hip strength. Hip strength, foot strength. Maybe they have some tight calf muscles. You know, the muscles grow super fast compared to the bones. Or the bones grow super fast compared to the muscles. So it just makes you have tight, especially boys when they're going through growth spurts. They just have these issues. I mean, girls too, but boys growth spurts seem to be a little... Longer, bigger. But let's just kind of go into more detail on that because I see that a lot in the office. Kids come in with heel pain. Mm-hmm. Kids come in with knee pain. And they the bones are what grow. Yes. And the soft tissue kind of stretches, gets, stretches around. <laughs> yes. And so when you're going through a growth spurt and the bones are growing rapidly. Yes. And, you know, four or five inches in a year is a lot. It is a lot. Then those muscles pull at their connection points. Yes. And that's where the pain comes from. Yes, and they tell you, oh, growing pains, that's not a real thing. Yes, it is. It's a totally <laughs> real thing. Um, but, and so let's go into detail about that. So w- what I usually tell parents is what growing pains aren't, growing pains don't usually keep kids from being physically active during the day. It's usually an evening mm-hmm. thing. Yes, at night they'll complain right before they go to bed, and you're like, no, you're just trying to stay up. It's not. It's just the muscles are finally able to stop moving, and they're starting to spasm, tighten down, yell at you for all the work that they've had to do that day in yep. that poor position. And things to do for that? So maintain flexibility. So we will um, make sure you have the right range of motion. If you don't, we will give you exercises to do that. Heat is great because that makes the muscle relax. Heating pads. Yes. Hot water bottles. Uh, rice in a so- uncooked rice. If you put it in a sock and throw it in your microwave yeah. for a few seconds, nice. it, it's a nice moist heat. And then it dissipates over time. So it's even something you could stick on your kid and then you walk away. It's just going to get cooler. It's not a burn issue. Yeah, good. And then I usually, you know, if short term, if they're just complaining that night, some ibuprofen or some Tylenol, just the pain but that shouldn't keep them from playing soccer and it shouldn't keep them from doing things on the playground that they want to do if child's limping during the day then they that might be something else yeah they should get looked at yes um and then the other things that are kind of related to that too are like your Seavers disease Mm -hmm. and your osgood slaughter which is really pain at those insertion points yes same thing same issue so Seavers is the growth plates in your heel they don't have good blood supply as you're growing there's goes from one artery to feed that those bones to two, and that process takes time. So the bone is growing, and it's like, hey, I don't want to work this hard, so now I'm going to have pain with soccer, basketball, and whatever. It's that heel pain, that yeah. 9 to 13. And that can be debilitating. I, what I usually see is kids will describe they're fine at practice, and it's right after they stop mm-hmm. yes. that 
it hurts. The inflammation kicks in. And they like limp to the car, but they've been running around in practice for two hours. Yes. Or it's between the games and the tournament weekends that they can't get into the second game because it hurts too much. So all self-limited. You're not going to have like a permanent heel condition. Correct. But remediated by range of motion stretching. And ice or an anti-inflammatory if Mm -hmm. you can take one. Okay, great. On to the next topic. Okay. What do you see next? Oh, wow. Well, so there's a lot of genetic issues popping up. We've gotten a lot better at understanding the human genome. So Mm -hmm. if you do have a child that has a delay and everything else is fine, their MRIs, if they've had them, are their ultrasounds of their head, they're fine. They'll say, okay, let's get some genetic testing. And then they'll say, oh, you have this three-gene deletions or this three-gene duplication. Let's get you into services. So are there specific things you would expect to see with some little micro-deletion? Or is it just sort of like acknowledging, okay, something is genetically going on here. So let's assess things thoroughly and address whatever issues. Hopefully that gets you services. So that gets you into physical, occupational, and speech therapies. And it gives you an idea. But all the genetic stuff, and it doesn't matter if it's a mi- micro deletion or duplication all the way to a whole extra chromosome. You could have mild to severe delays across the board, whether it's speech, cognition, gross motor, so running, jumping, walking, or fine motor, handwriting. They're just, it's not a concise, you right. have this deletion, you're going to have these issues. Well, so... You know, when I was in medical school, uh, there's this book. It's amazing. It's Smith's Recognizable Patterns of... uh, And they have a book of just all sorts of syndromes that you may never see during practice or you can look it up. And some of which the purpose of this book is to describe, you know, what you often see in a certain syndrome. You know, most notably like Down syndrome. There's certain things. There's protocols we have. But then there's all these new things with our ability now to detect micro deletions that you may never see this again this is just a a one-off thing or you might not know you had it you know i mean somebody some adult might be walking around and they walked at 14 months and nobody had the ability or understanding 40 years ago to say hey let's do some genetic testing on you and now they have a child that has that and now we just know we have a name for it yeah and And we see i see kids and then they're tested and then the parents are tested and ends up that they had it, but they maybe didn't even right. have any kind of delays. Correct. And so why this new baby is having developmental issues and the parent didn't is anybody's guess. Right. But and again, it hopefully just gives you the services that you need. Yeah. And so you work very closely with occupational therapy and speech. I mean, there's sort of a yes. it's integrated those three modalities, both, you know, for older kids in the school setting, you and your office, it's sort of a trifecta of approaching all the things that kids need. Absolutely. And there's some overlap, too. Um, in order to use your legs, you need to have a good core stability. In order to sit and write, you need to have good core stability. Yep. So we will both work on some core things, and there will be some overlap there. Uh, but, yeah, it's a, we have a very team approach very communicative with our other therapists to make sure that we're all on the same page. Different approaches to the same sort of thing as far as like core, like does an OT approach core strength differently than a PT? 
Um, I think our vegs and tricks are probably the same. Okay. It's just uh, just what works for that kid, yeah, you okay. know. Um, and OTs definitely do some more vestibular stuff. So the swinging, the rolling, the mm -hmm. where my body is in space, yep. which is great to understand motor coordination. I can't control my body if I don't know where it is. Yes. So we will. There's. They will, we will work with that as well to okay. work on. Great getting organized for that. Anything else you want to talk about? I think you've been... I see premature babies. Yeah, so, so talk about how you address... Talk about yeah, uh, so premature babies and what kind of issues they present and how early you get in your hands on these kids to help them. The remediate. earlier, the better. So you guys, once you leave the NICU, it would be great if you get to the outpatient setting and depending on how severe your issues are. You might qualify for um, a different kind of outpatient setting through CCS. Is there a role? Do you ever do any PT in the nursery? Yes, we have. A, well, I'm at John Muir. But yeah. They have a PT and OTs and speech in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And the speech people, obviously, they're not trying to teach preemies to talk. Right. It's more feeding. for feeding issues. Yes. It's yes. the other things you do with your mouth. And positioning and, and how they're moving. And gravity is hard on those babies. You go from this nice, fluid, happy, supportive environment yes. to gravity pulling you straight. and They're not ready for it. They're not ready for it. But they do great. I mean, yeah. 10 years ago, it was like, oh, 28 weeks, that was a little tight. And now we're... 22. It is amazing. So I've been in practice now for 25 years. So I was in my residency about 28 years ago. And the outcome, and I had some of these patients then, and still am following a few of them. And then what I see now for a 28-weeker, it, it's night and day. Yes. It's, it's definitely, I think the medical community uh, worries less about the 28-weekers. They're like, oh, yeah. We're going to just do this. This We got this. <laughs> it's, it's not that it's no risk, but, right. but no, the out, no. most kids do great. Yes. And I think it's because of this whole team approach with, I mean, the improvements as far as how they manage neonatal lungs, but also right. just getting involved in their Development. developmental mm -hmm. follow-up really yes. intensely at an early Yeah, you time. absolutely still can't just let that 28-weeker go home and hope for the best. You still need to do some things. Um, obviously, we need to make sure their airway is open and they're eating and... Then we help them explore the world. But the majority of patients that I have that are, you know, say under 10 years of age that are X 28 weekers, you wouldn't know. Yes. Lining them Correct. up next to other kids. Right. Yeah. Yep. Which is different than 20, 25 years ago. Or so even 10 or 15, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Yes. It's incredible. So that's great. Well, Laurel, thank you for coming in and talking. This has thank been for me. educational for me. I love talking about the crawling thing. <laughs> and um, just so if for people who might want to hear more from you and or come bring their child to you, how can people get a hold of you? So you have to get a referral from your pediatrician. Of course. So talk to your pediatrician. And then I'm at John Muir Health in Pleasant Hill, right in Hookston Square is the name of our building. Right. Well, thanks for coming in, and I look forward to talking to you in the future about other topics. Thank you. Right. And now let's take a brief break. When we return, we'll hear this week's parenting horror story and also answer a question from a listener. And we're back. 
Before we proceed with the next segments, I want to remind all of the listeners about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. In addition, if you'd like to contribute to our new segment, Parenting Horror Stories, you can also use this number. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. Call in with your question or horror story for the show. You can also contact us on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments or post questions and stories or idea topics for the show. Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. I really need more questions and horror stories for the show, so don't be bashful. Call or post your question or story today. In honor of Halloween, we're continuing our segment, Parenting Horror Stories. Calling on parents to call in with funny stories or anecdotes about funny or outrageous things that happened when trying to parent. It might be a story that describes your less than greatest parenting moment, or possibly just something funny or endearing that your child did. You don't have to identify yourself if you're embarrassed, or you can make up a funny pseudonym. So once again, here it is, Parenting Horror Stories. Hi, this is Courtney from Walnut Creek, and I am calling with my parenting horror story. Um, so a few weeks ago, I was getting breakfast for my son, Lennox, who's about two and a half years old. Needed to grab something in the refrigerator in the garage. Lennox was already eating something at the table, so I told him I'd be right back. I do it all the time, and he just sits there and waits for me. Well, unbeknownst to me, he followed me to the garage. And while I'm out of the fridge grabbing the food, I hear, click. And in my mind, I think, oh, there's no way he could figure out how to lock the door. But I run back to the door, and of course, it's locked. So part of me is thinking, ah, my kid is a genius. And the other part of me is starting to panic a little. On the other side of the door, I can hear him snickering, laughing, sort of taunting and teasing. And when I tried to talk to him and explain to him that while he thinks it's quite funny, I can't actually get back in, I hear nothing but silence. And now it also dawns on me that I have a three-month-old inside. Luckily, he was strapped in uh, to Baby Bjorn, but it's still not great to have a -a two-and-a-half-year-old on the loose and unsupervised with with a three-month-old just laying around. So, I was half panicking, half laughing, trying to figure out my next move. I was in my pajamas. It was about 7 a.m. I had no cell phone, no extra key. So I thought, all right, let me try and open the garage door and see if I could flag down a neighbor to either open through or break through my door or so that I could call my husband who worked about 15, 20 minutes away to come home and unlock the door, although I thought that might be quite a long time to leave the two of them inside. But while I was doing that, I was also yelling through the door, trying to get my son to unlock the door. And I kept saying, turn it the other way, turn it the other way. And luckily, he is a genius, and he turned it the other way and unlocked the door. And so when I opened the door, I saw he was actually no longer laughing. He was extremely upset and crying, and all he kept saying was, I needed my mommy. To which I tried to reply, well, then don't lock me out next time. Um, but a few minutes after I calmed him down, I remembered my little one was also inside, and poor second child always gets the second, uh, 
the second child syndrome, and I went to check on him. He was happy as a clam, had no idea what was happening, was just sort of gnawing on his fingers in his chair. And so I'd say the moral of my story is keep the breakfast food inside when you're still half asleep, or don't let your toddler out of your sight, or keep a spare key hidden somewhere, or that your child is actually a bit smarter than you think. So hopefully nobody else out there has experienced a horror story like that because it was quite scary at the time. Wow, that's quite a story. It actually reminds me of one of my stories that I want to share. Yes, I have some horror stories too. It was about 23 years ago. My oldest son was about two years old. It was October, and my son woke up at about 2 a.m. with a barky cough and a raspy voice. He obviously had croup. His mom was out of town for some reason. I don't remember why. So I went and got my croupy child from his room and took him outside to sit on our front porch. The cool, moist October air is just the thing to help a groupie child. I was only expecting to be out there for a few minutes, so my sick son and I just went out there in our PJs. Maybe I grabbed a light blanket from the couch. We recently had put a new front door on our house, and just as the door shut closed and I heard the click, I remembered that it was the kind of lock set where the door latch could be set to be locked from the inside in addition to the deadbolt. And just as I heard it shut, I realized that it was still set to lock. So there I was, it was 2 a.m., the temperature was in the mid-50s, and I had my sick two-year-old on my lap on the front porch, and we were locked out of the house. I had no phone, and this was in the early days of cell phones, so there was really no one to call anyways. There was no hide-a-key, and none of my neighbors had a key to the house. As we sat there, my son's croup started to get better in the cool air, so that was good. And I started to think about if I should knock on my neighbor's door and beg to sleep on their couch with my son until morning and then call a locksmith. I also contemplated smashing a side window and breaking into my own house. While we were sitting there starting to shiver, I got an idea. We had a cocker spaniel at the time, and had a small doggy door on the side of the house. I asked my two-year-old if he could crawl through the dog's door and go across the house to the front door and let me in. He was a very verbal two-year-old and he told me that he could do it. My plan was to bring him into the side of the house, help him through the door, and then run back to the front door and hopefully meet him there. My backup plan was that if he didn't meet me at the front door, or if he couldn't open it, I'd just break a window and get in that way. As I pushed my firstborn child through the doggy door in the dead of night into our dark and empty house, a sense of panic overtook me. He scurried through the door and into the darkness. I ran around to the front door and waited. And after a minute or two, I heard his tiny footsteps and then some jiggling of the door handle. I didn't know if he was strong enough to turn the stiff knob. But after five or ten seconds of work, and with my encouragement, the door swung open and I was greeted by... Daddy! And those are the parenting horror stories for the week. Happy Halloween, everybody. And now for this week's phone-in question. Hi, this is Carrie from San Francisco. My question is, I have a six-year-old daughter who still wets the bed at night. Right now, I still have her wearing pull-ups at night, but wondering at what point I should be concerned or how I can help her stop. 
Thanks for calling. That is an excellent question. About 15% or so of six-year-olds still experience bedwetting, also known as nocturnal enuresis. While this is something that your child will most likely outgrow in the next year or so, there are some things that may help speed things up. Oftentimes, children don't drink enough fluids during the day while at school because they don't want to use the bathroom while at school. So they come home a little dehydrated, but often just go about their after-school activities, they do homework and so on. Then comes dinner time, and they're super thirsty and drink a lot of fluids to quench this. They often overshoot their needs, and as a result, produce a lot of urine both after dinner and for the first few hours after they go to sleep. As an alternative, I recommend encouraging the child to drink a lot of fluids when they first get home from school, and then have them limit their fluid after about 5 p.m. Then, if they do this, they can pee off any extra fluid in the late afternoon and have less urine produced after they go to bed. The other obvious thing to point out is that many kids don't feel like they have to go to the bathroom until it's urgent. So before they go to bed, make sure that they actually empty their bladder all the way. Because if they start the night with half a tank, they won't get very far until they overflow. Now, down the line if things aren't resolving with time, there are things you can try. Sleep dry alarms and medicines via pill or nasal spray to name a few. But at this age, I would just go with what we talked about and give it some time. And that's our show for the day. I hope you liked it. I would really like to thank Laurel Clymer for taking the time to talk with me about pediatric physical therapy and all that is involved in what she does. I think that the information in the discussion will give parents a good foundation about what a pediatric physical therapist can do for your child, from treating developmental delays to treating and minimizing growth-related sport injuries. So until next time, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you and your child good health and happy parenting. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The owner's manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the owner's manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, MD, and One to One Pediatrics Incorporated. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved.